Well hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stamel Major. In this episode we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is the 10th part of the reading and we're continuing chapter 3. Now if you haven't already please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for $5 a month you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional exclusive Patreon only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 3 continued. 11th day's run to noon fix, Saturday 23rd of January 1971. Distance fix to fix, 185.5 miles. Calculated distance to finish, 2093.25 miles. Days remaining, 9. So now Gypsy Moth would have to make daily fix-to-fix runs of 232.6 miles for the remaining nine days of the 20-day target. It was a depressing prospect. The wind had eased too, and at one time it was down to six knots. I got fed up with ambling along and altered course 20 degrees to windward for more speed, but it meant that I was driving too far north of the track I wanted to follow. I'm getting worried about the wind. First, of course, that it is not strong enough to give me a chance for my project. Secondly, that it keeps in the east and is driving Gypsy Moth continually north of the course. The farther north Gypsy Moth is driven, the more southerly will the heading have to be later in order to reach Nicaragua. Worst of all, this heading, if continued too long, will push me out of the trade wind belt. Already I feel I would have stronger wind if further south. The present heading is 31.5 degrees off course, If the wind has not backed by tomorrow, I must set to and jibe first thing. The actual wind is half a point north of east, almost exactly the reciprocal of the course required, so that one jibe is as good as any other. Jibing is a lousy job though, because I must not only unrig the pole and re-rig it to the port side, but must drop both the number one jib and the big runner, unhank them and transfer them to the other stay before re-hoisting. I wanted to sleep and not eat supper, so I turned in at half past eight, but I only had a couple of hours before a small squall overpowered the self-steering gear and began pushing Gypsy Moss head to wind. Fortunately, I had rigged a new tackle to the tiller, which would be easier to work from my bunk. The lead-ins from the cockpit were now better placed, so that there was a lot less friction, and the hard pull needed at the bunk was reduced. I was anxious not to have Gypsy Moth come up to the wind and put the running sail aback because of the strain on the mended pole, but after twice using the tackle from my bunk to bring Gypsy Moth's head back on course, I gave in and went on deck to drop the topsail. At 05.20, I had nightmares of Christopher Doll being aboard and chasing me with a cine camera to film the pole drama. I was wildly racking my brain how to hide from him and find some hideout where I could sleep. In the end, I woke fully because of hideous boom clankings, and I imagined the worst had happened, only to find that the spliced boom was apparently staunch and unmoved by the rough treatment. I am sure I need to jibe and search for better winds further south, but I cannot bear to do it because at present Gypsy Moth is only 10 degrees off her required course. I kept on saying this, and have been steadily pushed further and further north as a result. Oh, for a northeaster instead of the continued easterly wind. I can hear a poor, silly flying fish beating the cabin top with its tail, but should one feel sorry for these fish, which are fierce, merciless hunters in their own place? Twelfth 
day's run to noon fix on Sunday the 24th of January 1971. Distance fix to fix, 201.3 miles. Calculated distance to finish, 1,894.5 miles. Days remaining, 8. The speed had improved, although the wind speed was still low, down to 8 knots at one time in the past 24 hours. Afternoon, it perked up to between 12 and 16 knots. I was trying to assess the tactical situation. On her present heading, Gypsy Moth was only 8.5 degrees off course to the northward. A jibe to the other side of the wind would have her pointing some hundreds of miles south of Trinidad to British Guiana, and so it was just not on except in desperation. The best thing to do might be to pray for the wind to back. What was so tantalising was that a northeast wind was a 50-60% to 60% expectation in this area of the Atlantic, whereas easterly winds, from which I was suffering, were to be expected for only 35% of the time. I wished I were 150 miles to the south where I had planned to be. There, the wind expectation was even more favourable, 75% northeasterly. However, it was no good moaning about what might have been. I had got to wriggle out of this situation the best way I could. In spite of the lighter winds, the speed rose to nine knots for a short period in the evening. Squally rain showers were passing through, and I had to be on the alert because there was a bit of a to-do with each one, and I had always to be ready to drop the topsail in a hurry. At 19.20, at the end of the nine-knot period, I decided to drop the topsail without waiting for the next crisis. There was enough in these rain squirts to make the heel uncomfortable, but my chief concern was to avoid risking or overtaxing the mended boom. The powerful compression load it had to bear, even in fair weather, was shown by the difficulty in outhauling the clue of Big Brother to the end of the boom, even when using a takele with double sheave blocks on the outhaul. With the topsail down, there was comparative peace, but the speed dropped a knot. By the evening, I had had only one normal meal during the day, and that was breakfast. However, that was a proper blowout. Wheat germ and muesli with an orange squeezed into it, plus some lemon juice, plus raisins and grated nuts, followed by about 10 ounces of potato fried with two eggs, plus two cuts of my newly baked 100% wholemeal loaf with honey and marmalade, and a banana and coffee to top up. Otherwise, I had had only four bananas in the morning, and after the evening radio session, a salad sandwich made from a cut of the new loaf, buttered and barmined, with a layer of mustard from the garden, grated carrot, garlic and raisins. Oh, also another cut of the loaf, with cherry jam and two cuts of the Christmas cake, with its delicious marzipan coating, given me by the makers in Plymouth. I didn't want another meal, but I did want some sleep. An hour and a half later, at nine o'clock, I woke to such banging on deck that I was convinced the boom repair had come apart. I rushed up, but as soon as I was in the cockpit, the row stopped, and I could see that the boom was quite unmoved. What caused the noise? I could not think, because I could see nothing wrong anywhere. Once in the cockpit, I could not leave it. The balmy air flowing over my naked body was deliciously cooling after the heat of the cabin. The diamond-bright stars were set in a black sky. Occasionally, I shrank from the side of the cockpit when a wave broke over the counter and boiled alongside, but nothing came over the combing while I was there, and I gave myself over to the romantic pleasure of sliding fast through the seas into the night in my slim, powerful craft. 
An hour after midnight, I tried to coax the self-steering gear to hold a better course more downwind, but the speed was cut down at once. It was tantalising to have the wind astern if Gypsy Moth was headed for San Juan, tantalising, because it was so pleasant and comfortable to sail, but the devil for speed. At 0750, I was lying on my berth, writing up the log, when there was a tremendous bang, followed by the usual flapping and flogging. I was out on deck, PDQ, with no time for any clothes or safety harness. It was not the boom at all. That was banging against the topmost forestay, but apparently was still quite staunch. It was the metal clearing of the big runner sail, which had collapsed and let the sail fly out forward like a giant flag. I dealt with the situation, the only difficulty being to muzzle the flogging sail with only one hand, while holding the halyard downhaul with the other. If I had let go of the halyard, the sail would have come down with a run, and Gypsy Moth would have sailed over it again. That damn sail is already pink with anti-fouling paint. It was an hour before I had the big runner hobbled, dropped and bagged, and the topsail hoisted again. Then I rigged the pole rest on the stem pulpit. It needed the vice to straighten the locking pin which had been bent in the previous pole break, and dropped the pole to inspect it. The repair job, however, looked absolutely unshaken and unmoved, and I decided not to touch it. Feel feeble, it said in the log. We'll have small breakfast. That was the first of the day's troubles. What had happened was that a large sector of the big stainless steel clue ring, about three-eighths thick and four inches across, of which a piece was sewn into the corner of the sail, had broken clean away. The break released the sheet and the outhaul bowlins which let the sail fly. I had to drop the outboard end of the boom onto the pulpit in order to recover the end of the outhaul. This was when the second schmozzle of the day occurred. One of the broken boom ends had a jagged point protruding beyond the diameter of the pole where the metal sides had been crunched together when the boom collapsed in a V and I had afterwards broken it in two. The boom was resting on the stem pulpit at one end and secured to the lug on the mast at the other end. While I was crawling under it doubled up, I hooked this razor-sharp jag into my scalp. Blood seemed to be everywhere. Some running across my spectacles put one eye out of action, and decks, ropes, and all were showered with it. When I got below, I could not see what had happened because I could not get into a position in front of one of the mirrors where the light was strong enough to see by if I held another mirror in my hand above my head. Then I could not find any disinfectant except iodine, which I believe is out of fashion and anyway hurts like hell. Then I couldn't find a suitable piece of plaster for the top of my head. When at last I did find a piece in Sheila's first aid drawer, I had trouble manipulating it and could not see where to put it because as soon as I took away the wad of paper I was using to staunch the flow, there was such a mess that I could not see where the wound was. In the end, I used the more positive but surprisingly effective method of feeling for the cut with a finger and placing the plaster on by touch. Thirteenth day's run to noon fix on Monday the 25th of January 1971. Distance fix to fix, 180 miles. Calculated distance to finish, 1,718.75 miles. Days remaining, seven. I bagged the clueless big brother and set the 600 instead. Then I worked out the position and the run from the sun sights. I felt thoroughly depressed. The fix-to-fix fix run of 180 miles was bad enough, but also I was worrying about driving into an impossible situation where the winds would grow progressively lighter and more variable the further north I sailed. I must jibe at any cost. 
This meant a big operation, and I had only an hour and a half before I had to call up the BBC. I had made a bad blunder in not jibing when the big runner blew out, and I had the pole down on the deck. I had been convinced then that I ought to jibe, but I had acted instead on mathematics and reasoning, which had made me re-rig the boom on the same side, as before. I dropped the 600-square-foot runner, dropped the pole, and unshipped it completely on the starboard side, dropped the number one jib, and jibed. The jibe was a pretty good botch-up. Gypsy Moth had been so long on the other tack that sheets, ropes, and vangtails had been overlaid or tangled with other ropes. I was just getting these sorted out when, glancing up at the self-steering gear, I saw what I took to be a big shark following close astern. I hopped onto the counter. It was no shark, but it looked like a 30-foot sea serpent or sea snake twisting sinuously from side to side, too deep in the water to see clearly. I went to the end of the counter and then noticed a yellowish object two-thirds of the way along it. Those might be horns sticking out from it. Was it a mine? No, not big enough. I thought it might be a collapsed Met balloon with a container caught up in it. Anyway, whatever it might be, it was hooked up on the rudder and cutting the speed in half. It must be got away. I sorted out and rigged my grapnel, but Gypsy Moth had too much weight on her for the grapnel to go down. It was swept astern by the slipstream. I must stop the boat, but with this rig, Gypsy Moth cannot be stopped simply by putting her aback. The three boom sails keep her moving. I thought the best thing I could do was to drop all the sails and stop dead. I dropped the mizzen staysail and the topsail, but then thought I could manage by leaving the mizzen and main staysail up if I came hard to the wind. This slowed Gypsy Moth down enough for the grapnel to sink in the water, and I hooked the thing. It was a big, meshed net of heavy, coarse netting. I began hauling it in and was astonished to find that the object halfway along it was a turtle, hopelessly entangled. He was heavy, and I had to tug and heave to get him aboard. Finally, I worked the net, heave by heave, up and over the lifeline until I could grab the turtle and haul him over too. He was an attractive pale brown, weighed some 40 or 50 pounds and was very handsome. I was astonished to find he was alive. Since he could not have drifted against the equatorial current in the net, he must have come from Africa, 2,300 miles away, and could have been in the net for a year. Later I found that the net 60 foot long was indeed made in Africa. He never would have got free because each leg and his neck were through different meshes of the neck. He looked like being a handful if I cut him free, so I decided to photograph him first. To keep him from being awkward and perhaps damaging something, I turned him over on his back. Then I cut him loose. He evidently could not recognise a fairy godfather when he saw one because he at once snapped at me. Finally, I slid him back into the ocean where he flippered off gaily as if he regularly made year-long voyages across the Atlantic imprisoned in a net. I wondered what the cumulative odds must have been against his being released. First of all, there were the odds against his being caught in the net, then the longer odds against the net breaking away, further odds against being swept out to sea, further odds against entering the Guinea current to be carried into the Atlantic, incredibly long odds against the net being caught in the keel of a yacht 2,300 miles out in the Atlantic, almost as long odds against the net being hauled on board, and finally, I would think it was a pretty lone chance that the skipper of the yacht should be vegetarian by preference. I suddenly remembered my date with the radio telegraph. I felt bustled. Already I was late. 
The sails were mostly down and the deck seemed to be littered with untidy heaps of gear. Immediately I had finished talking, I set to work again with urgency. First I rehoisted the topsail and the mizzen staysail, sheeted the mizzen and the main staysail properly, and hoisted the 600 runner to starboard as a Genoa. By 5pm I was ready for the tough job of moving the repaired boom across the deck. First it had to be worked aft along the deck until it would pass between the main mast and the main staysail, then forward again to the stem pulpit. Although only 22 foot long, its weight was now that of a boom 33 feet long, plus the boat hook, plastic piping and the long row of lashings. Besides that, the jagged edges of the two broken ends had to be treated with great respect. They seemed to catch on every item of deck gear as I worked the boom across. I got the outboard end onto the pulpit pole rest, but the boom was now so heavy and clumsy to handle that I had to use a topping lift to raise the gooseneck end off the deck to the lug on the mast. Then the belly of the joint wanted to hang downwards, twisting the boom round so that it was difficult to connect the gooseneck snap hook at the heel of the boom to the lug. Everything seemed to get fouled up. The boom lift was twisted round itself and had to be re-rigged. The aft guy had passed under the top lifeline instead of over it and needed re-reeving. And then I found that one of the jumper stays had parted halfway up the mast and was fouled by the topsail halyard. So down that halyard had to come. Next I had to drop the big Genoa because its halyard was fouled. The whole enterprise seemed desperately hopeless, with no speed and darkness and a rain squall about to catch me. However, I kept at it, and in the end the topsail was up, the Genoa was up, the pole was up, and the number one jib was boomed out. The jib set perfectly and turned out to be much bigger for booming out than the 600 runner. It is true that it was 90 square feet smaller, but I think that this was outweighed by the efficient lead-in of the wind to the Genoa on the other side. At last, all the sails were set and drawing to my satisfaction, and I returned to a brandy I had poured out at the time of the radiotelegraph session some three hours earlier. I certainly have enjoyed that brandy now, I logged, and it is only a snifter compared with what I plan to have to follow it. 14th day run to noon fix on Tuesday the 26th of January 1971. Distance fix to fix, 157.5 miles. Calculated distance to finish, 1,574 miles. Days remaining, 6. The bust sail, my bloodied head, the turtle and his net, had all between them wrecked the day's run. Distance was lost by sailing off course when the turtle net was hooked up on the keel because, at 173.5 miles, the distance sailed was considerably more than the fixed to fixed line. The day before, the speed had dropped 0.6 knots from 7.8 to 7.2, an 8.4% loss when the big runner was put out of action early in the morning. There was no boomed out sail for just over 12 hours, and I think that 8 miles were lost to the run because of that while a further 10 miles were lost by the disorganisation of the sails and sailing while I was playing with the turtle. Altogether, I would put the total loss at 24 miles, or one knot over the day, and that is a conservative estimated rate. With only six days of the 20 left, the remaining 1,574 miles would demand a daily run of 262.3 miles per day to reach my target, which was quite impossible. However, I thought I had the consolation of having achieved my original aim of 200 miles per day for a 1,000 mile run point to point, 
Gypsy Moth had totaled 1,006.5 miles, a total of the five days fix-to-fix runs of 180, 207, 207, 219 and 193.5 miles between the noon fixes of the 16th and the 21st of January. But when I calculated the five-day run point-to-point, it was 995.5 miles. I had failed to reach the 1,000-mile mark in five days by a miserable 4.5 miles. An hour after noon, I climbed the mast to seek out the cause of the broken jumper stay. One of the screws of the bottle screw about halfway up the mast had snapped. I could not find another of that same size on board, so I secured the end as well as I could with cordage. The actual wind was now east by south, and Gypsy Moth was headed for the Martinique Passage, 240 miles ahead, between Dominica and Martinique. I should probably need a star fix at dusk the next night if approaching the islands in the dark afterwards. At nine o'clock the next morning, the 27th, I paid off both the mizzen and the mizzen staysail as a speed experiment. The sailing speed during the hour before checking the sheets was 7.1 to 7.2 knots. During two hours with the sails paid off, the speeds were 7.9 to 8 knots. Then I hardened them in again and in the next hour the speed dropped again to 7.25. The relative wind was coming in on the port quarter. At intervals during the night, it had kept coming back to my mind. The original target I had set my heart on was point-to-point run of a thousand miles in five days. And a log entry later that morning reads, Thanks be to God for the world's most enjoyed breakfast, during which I worked out the route, which I like very much, for two additional five-day, 1,000-mile speed attempts on the way home. It would not be such a favourable time of year for them as I originally planned, but I would at least have the sport of making them. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's The Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out The Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Trimaran Spirit, sailing from Antigua to Bermuda and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all for today from the Mariner's Library. I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>